I'm David Pope. And I am Christian Silvestri. And this is the Safety Frontiers Podcast. Welcome to Safety Frontiers Podcast number one with Christian Silvestri and me, David Pope. Welcome, Christian. Thank you, David. It's good to be here. This is our first podcast about safety, but not our first discussion about safety. And it's great to get this thing off the drawing board and into the real world. Yes, it certainly is. Look, I think we probably need to state our aims. Our first aim is to explore, explore in more detail the field of safety, from the safety landscape as we currently know it, to the new frontiers, the areas that people are pushing into, seek out their thinking and their learnings. This exploration is designed to help shape our thinking. We don't set out to give answers, rather share thinking and evidence to help you think about these issues for yourself. We all get busy and it's comforting to belong to something new and shiny, but we think it is infinitely more important to be well informed. So rather than allowing opinions to be formed from what is being peddled, we want to explore and question its substance, something not welcomed by the peddlers. This podcast will seek to help you think about safety as you journey through the current landscape, mapping a course to maximise the chances of meeting your objectives, that of your team and also your workplace, and that's why we've named it Safety Frontiers. The second aim is, is more of a selfish one, and that's for us to learn and to ultimately have fun in doing this. Preparing, planning and mapping out a podcast you know, challenges our cognitive horsepower uh, to hopefully reach new limits, which both of us enjoy of course mm-hmm. and you know, and also we enjoy you know, talking about safety i know both of us come away from you know most of our safety discussions with a different perspective about something think of it as sitting having a coffee and talking about safety but before we start on the podcast proper how about a little bit about each other christian thanks i'm a chemical engineer i have a master's degree I've been working in safety for 25 years and the initial 10 years with an oil and gas giant. And over the years, I worked a lot with safety and environmental management systems, so much so that I became a senior certifying auditor for both safety and environment and worked for LRQA. Now, what I wasn't prepared for and surprised me was that good systems did not always result in good safety performance. I also worked in the leadership space designing and delivering training that increase care, trust, engagement, a sense of belonging, improve relationships, all kinds of things that we still see today. What I wasn't prepared for and also surprised me was that good leadership didn't always result in good safety performance. I thought I must have been doing it wrong. So I approached others that were doing work in similar areas. And what I found was that they were experiencing the same issues. So when you invest in a certain mental model, like I did with safety being a function of the management system or leadership, and you discover data does not fit, there are only two alternatives. You either disregard the data or you change your mental model. Now, given the similar experiences of others, I couldn't just disregard the data. If it was just me, it was one thing, but this was kind of being observed by others as well. So very reluctantly, I must admit, and it was quite difficult to do, I came to the conclusion that I had to change my view. It seemed like I was missing something, so I started looking for what that could be. Fifteen years ago, one of the first things I looked into was inattention. And sometimes it got called mistakes or error, sometimes human error, misjudgment, miscalculation. 
all words for being human and the human condition. I found it everywhere, at work and also outside of work, maybe not as bad as we see it today, but still there. And although everyone acknowledges its existence, most people think there is nothing we can do about it. Not true. We now know that systems or leaderships are good to have, but are not enough to deal with inattention effectively. It wasn't until I started looking at neuroscience, or brain science if you like, that I began to understand how inattention came about and what could be done about it. Now these days, me and my team use the latest scientific research about the brain to help clients understand inattention and what they need to do in order to help people minimise it. We've been doing it for 15 years, that's what we do, and that's really all we do. Now, as far as life experiences are concerned, I'm the father of two. Sometimes it feels like I'm the father of four, and I do a lot of bushwalking as part of my relaxation techniques. David, what about you? From an education perspective, I'm an engineer also, like you. However, mechanical engineer with uh, you know, further studies in environmental and, and leadership. More recently, though, neuroscience has caught my attention as, as we discover you know, how that all-important organ in our head works, the brain, and how central it is to, to behaviour. This, this comes from my, my, I suppose, my engineering curiosity, I guess, and pulling things apart to learn how, how things work. And with that curiosity, for me anyway, comes a very healthy dose of scepticism around my understanding how stuff works. And when other people tell me how stuff works, for me, it's never, don't tell me, it's a, it's a show me sort of mindset. From a, so that, therefore, I'm right into the science of things, right into understanding, diving, diving deep into the hows, the where's, the whys. Similar to you, I've worked at uh, Big Oil and Gas for 15 years. Actually, turns out to be 21 years with two stints uh, at uh, Big Oil and Gas. And across multiple industries as well, mining, utilities, construction, more recently manufacturing. Pretty broad experience, really. I've also worked as a, as a consultant for global organization and in the past 10 years I've worked for myself with others because I always I find it far more satisfying working with others but working for myself and my own little company. From a safety career perspective, I came to safety as a specific role about 10 years ago but my, my background uh, at Big Oil and Gas really gave me a good grounding in safety, especially as I moved up the organisation and being in charge of more and more people. It became a greater focus for my role and what I did and how I affected others. I guess I've always been interested in, in people and why they do what they do. As I said before, my engineering sort of thought processes and curiosity have driven me to this point where I now realise it's more about people than systems and environment, although they're important too. I've learned um, we can never remove all of the hazards from the universe. At some point, we need to deal with people and, and how to help, help people deal with the, those hazards. Life experiences, uh, I'm a father of four. Uh, my wife would say that she's a mother of five, based on, <laughs> based on my experiences and based on me. And in some cases, I probably wouldn't disagree with her either. 
look, I think what brought us together is this curiosity about how the world works and more specifically, you know, why people do what they do. So let's begin by asking questions about the fundamental approach that we will take to explore these safety frontiers. Okay. Um, the lens we will use to look through. And for yeah. both of us, it's science. So I know that you've yeah. done a fair bit of work in order to define science because people use that word almost to add credibility to something that maybe doesn't have any science to it at all. So what is science? Well, that, that's a really good point. And, and what has driven my interest in this is exactly as you've said, those who, from my perspective, have tried to associate science to make something look science-y. So yeah, that's really one of my curiosities and pulling that, why I pulled that apart. Um, so I've done a lot of reading in this area and probably what resonates most with me, you know, comes from Karl Popper's work in the middle of the last century. If we look at the, the traditional understanding of the scientific method, uh, it is to look and observe with no preconceived notions. You look, see what you see, develop a hypothesis from those observations. But what Popper knew, and as we know today as well, is that um, we all have preconceived notions, even if we don't want to admit them. So any review of evidence will be biased because of those preconceived notions. Basically, if we find evidence to support our biases and prove our beliefs and thoughts, then we'll put that up as confirmation of what we're thinking. Now, what Popper thought of, I agree with him, and I really try to use his technique, and uh, what is more powerful is to look specifically for evidence to disprove your beliefs and theories. If you can find often just one piece of evidence to disprove your theory, then your belief or theory is wrong. And that's where this whole Popper falsification has come in. And it's, in my mind, a, a powerful and personally challenging approach because you specifically go out to look for information to disprove what you believe. It's a brilliant approach. And you know, as, as the, the great scientist or the great Richard Feynman said, you know, it doesn't matter how beautiful your theory is. It doesn't matter how smart you are. If it doesn't agree with experiment, it's wrong. So you know, going to look for information that disproves your, your theory, it's all about that. Of course, you know, the, the contrary is, is you know, if you can't find any evidence or any data to disprove your theory, then it's right for the moment. Uh, it's, the, it's the best that we, that we can do. And I think that's the beauty of legitimate science. Discovery is always potentially around the, around the corner if, you know, if you're looking for it. Now, the classic example that goes with Popper falsification you know, is, the, is the belief that all swans were white because everywhere they looked, they saw white swans. Now, that, that theory got trashed pretty quickly as, as soon as explorers discovered black swans in <laughs> Perth, right? And yeah. you know, for many hundreds of years, they had never seen black swans because Perth was on this far begotten land, you know, many, 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 many miles away. So, mm -hmm. okay. so yeah, so that's how, how I think we should be looking at and defining science. 
All right. So science, if I can just sort of paraphrase, is um, sure. you try really hard to disprove whatever you believe. And if you've tried really hard and you can't disprove it, then that doesn't make it necessarily the truth, but it makes it the best version that's the closest to reality at this point in time. At, at this point in time, exactly right. Papa said, you know, you, uh, theories can't be proven, theories can only be disproven. So at, at some point, if you can disprove it, then your theory is fallen apart. Otherwise, we continue with the theory that we have, the best we have at the point, at right, the so, point in time. So if, you, if your theory falls apart, you've got to come up with a better theory. That's progress, that's science. Exactly right. So Popper said that science seeks to disprove while pseudoscience only seeks to prove. Is this the same as science predicts data from theories whereas pseudoscience fits the theory to the data. Uh, that's exactly right. It, it's that retrospective look okay. at the data, applying your theory to the data you've already collected versus using your theory to predict what, what could come in the future. So if your theory doesn't predict the future, then there's something that you need to work on as far as your theory is concerned. Yeah, your theory is potentially not as strong as it could be. That's okay. correct. All right. So the next question is how do we apply this to safety? How do we go about disproving some of the beliefs that are floating around in safety or trying to disprove them and finding out that there's, there's no disproof and therefore that they're valid? Well, I reckon this, this is where repeatability, reproducibility and predictability comes into the into the discussion and plays a significant role in in the, the discovery process and the studies that we're doing in safety to be clear though now repeatability repeatability means the same people run the same study and get the same result so a study is deemed repeatable when that occurs reproducibility means when a different group run the same study and get the same result then predictability which which is the one I think is the most powerful and the one I like the most, is it means when you're using your theories to declare in advance the outcomes from an experiment. Although bottom line with here, anything we discuss in terms of safety science needs to be shown to be repeatable, reproducible and predictable. Otherwise, I'm, I'm calling it pseudoscience until, until I'm disproved like what Popper suggests. That's Popper falsification. You, using, using some of the fundamentals of, of science, uh, experimental repeatability, reproducibility, and predictability. But if we incorporate all of those, that, that's the basis in which we are going to look through information and data as part of our podcast. Now, do you know some of the history of how Popper came to this? Just to quickly divert on that one, you know, Popper was around an exciting time. Uh, Einstein was there in, in Vienna. Uh, Freud was, was just finishing there in Vienna. And, and he would attend lectures. He would attend Einstein's lectures. And he would also be you know, considering the, the writings of the works of Freud. And thinking through this, he made a really important distinction and observation, which led to Popper falsification. And, and what he noticed was that Freud, Freud's theories would fit retrospectively 
to the data and the evidence. Where Einstein would use his theories to predict what data should be from his, or what he was expecting, his expectations from his theories. The important one with, with Einstein in this way, if, if the theory was wrong, the data doesn't match the prediction, and therefore he reworks his theories. Where, you know, whereas Freud could match his theories to any of the data, have no predictive capabilities, and say it fit everything. You know, Einstein would, you know, would use his theories to, to make these predictions, where Freud would just assess the outcome and fit his theories to the data. I think we still have this issue today with psychology and a lot of the safety, so-called safety science that's currently being undertaken. It's a retrospective look at the data. I've yet to see anything from safety science that has theories that are predictable. I've not seen any one of these safety scholars, I'll use that word loosely, or advisedly, I should say, making predictions on their safety theories. That's probably the topic of another podcast, Christian, I, I suspect. But um, I think so. a lot of and a lot of a lot of stuff that we could talk about there. So let's just talk about, you know, the science aspects here. The important thing is to establish whether something is legitimate science. Why is that important? There are lots of different views in safety. Some are more ideologies than anything else. And sometimes people use the word science to give themselves a bit more credibility. We need to be able to tell the difference between something that sounds sciencey and legitimate science if we want to make real progress in safety. Now, to be clear, measurement is not enough to make something legitimate science, although legitimate science does measure. It measures relevant things in a scientific way. Yeah, uh, I agree. Writing a paper and having it peer-reviewed is not enough to make something legitimate science either. Although legitimate science does write papers and conducts studies and peer reviews, but legitimate science does that not in the echo chamber of like-minded souls, as I'd like to say. Mm. Let's look at an example. Right? Now, yeah, we, we've heard some claims about, or we've heard some claims that safety one, or as we would prefer to call it, first-generation safety is not scientific. No papers, no studies, and no academic support. Determining whether something is legitimate science, in my mind, is not about papers, studies, and academic support. It's about repeatability, reproducibility, and predictability. So if we use those tests, for me, first-generation safety seems to pass. First-generation safety is about management systems. Then this method has been used across the planet to achieve a relatively consistent improvement in safety performance. Absolutely. And although it's been driven more by industry and government than using the pearls of wisdom from academics, it's pretty clear that having a, manage a safety management system is a good thing and it improves safety. Yeah, and it shouldn't surprise us that you know, some of the academics today, together with a few that pretend to use academia to justify their view, claim first-generation safety is, is not scientific because of papers and studies. But if we use that test, you know, for, for me, the argument put forward by, by these folk you know, crumbles as, as, soon as, as soon as I request any legitimate science on their view, it tends not to appear. So if they think it is legitimate science, but it isn't, what is it then? 
it's mostly, cor- in my view, it's mostly correlation passed off as legitimate science. All right, so let's just sort of define what we mean by that. Can you expand? Well, firstly, I'll tell you what correlation is not. Correlation is not cause and effect. For instance, people with yellow teeth having lung cancer is correlation. People with yellow teeth tend to have a higher incident of lung cancer, but yellow teeth does not cause lung cancer. But people who smoke having lung cancer is cause and effect because we know from repeatable, reproducible evidence that smoking causes lung cancer. But if you didn't know any better and didn't do the research, you could fall into the trap of believing that yellow teeth causes lung cancer. How much of what we see in safety is correlation passed off as legitimate science? How can we use science to improve safety is the key question. Well, the first thing we need to do is to have the courage to question our own mental models of safety. Um, Because if we don't, our view will be determined by what is fed to us rather than what the legitimate science is discovering. Now, I appreciate the common view is popular, but there are many examples where the common view was corrected by someone from the outside of the echo chamber of a profession. Now, have you ever heard of Alfred Wagner? Uh, No. Okay, interesting character. So he was the first to propose plate tectonics in his theory of continental drift in 1915. Yep. Right? but he was a meteorologist presenting his theory with some paleontonic evidence at a geologist conference. How do you think the geologist reacted? Yeah, let me guess. <laughs> not, not, so, not so happy. Now, what would a meteorologist know about geology? Absolutely nothing. His theory was ridiculed and promptly dismissed. But in the 1960s, when we started looking deep into the oceans, we discovered the mid-Atlantic Oceanic Ridge and the penny dropped for the geologist. Alfred was right all along. What can we do in safety not to get caught short and react like the geologist did in 1915? Yeah, great question, great question. For me, there are, there are some, some, some clear questions to help our thinking while we do this. Number one, are you too strongly attached to your belief about how safety works? Number two, are you looking for reasons to disprove your belief? A bit like the Bono's black hats thinking. The Bono's black hat thinking? Uh, yeah, De, Bo- De Bono, De Bono's six thinking hacks, six thinking hats. A framework to help us think more broadly. Um, you know, the hats were coloured and the black, the black hat dealt with risk and using critical judgment, logical reasoning for concerns. In my mind, one of the most powerful hats of De Bono's. It's essentially, it's about engaging, you know, our, our conscious thinking in that number two. And the third, the, the third thinking, does the theory have any, any evidence of repeatability, reproducibility, with the most important aspect, can it be used to predict outcomes? So again, summarise, question your attachment to your belief, look for evidence to disprove your belief, is there evidence of repeatability, reproducibility, and predictability? Three very good questions. Thanks, David. Is there anything else? Not that I can think of. I, I think that that's a good wrap-up for how we're going to use science in the Safety Frontiers podcast to assess what people are thinking. What are the new the new thoughts? What are the what are the areas in which people are doing work? and thinking in different ways. I agree. 
So that concludes our first podcast. Thank you for joining us today. In the next podcast, we will discuss the evolution of safety, the journey from first generation to second generation safety, and what is next on the horizon. Hope you can join us then. 